0: Welcome to Feeling Bookish. In this episode, Rob and Roman talk Thomas Mann
1: and introduce their next reading challenge. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Good to have you with us. This is Rob Fay, and I'm joined by Roman Sivkin, and that was Heston Hoffman, our sound engineer, with the fine introduction, so we appreciate that. Well, it's good to be back, Roman. Um, you know, yes. you, as we talked about your, you told folks last time you're uh, in New York and uh, going through the summer there with the heat, which I know is always challenging, but.
0: Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, it's nice and toasty. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know,
1: th- th- things are still fairly warm here back in Oregon. Uh, Southern Oregon is is burning away, sadly, um, as I'm sure people probably see on.
0: If you need any water, I can send you plenty. There's plenty of yeah. water here. Yeah. We just need to start the trucks going from the East to the West of the water.
1: Yeah. So it's, yeah, sad, but, uh, yeah, certainly our new reality, but, uh, but the Olympics are going on. And as, uh, someone who has a, a Japanese spouse, she's very excited about, you know, the Olympics in Tokyo. She was not happy about, you know, the decision to hold the Olympics, but now once turned underway, you know, we're, we're, we're all in with the athletes. And so we're having fun with that. But, uh, but happy, yeah, man, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, you know, I, I've been, I've had some vacation time, so I've had some time to do some reading um, and excited to, you know, talk about a couple of things. Um, you know, I did get it's a funny chance Rob, to by finish. The
0: way, Go ahead. Yeah. I just wanted to tell you just your, your voice uh, after that vacation and the, the the sort of the downtime you had, your voice sounds yeah. relaxed. You sound relaxed. You sound like you're in a good space. That's great.
1: That's good, man. It's good to hear. Yeah, because um I was not in a good space prior to going on vacation. Right. So, so right, if you want to yeah. so if you want to listen to the previous episode, you can probably do a compare and contrast <laughs> of my vocal delivery. Um but that's good to hear. I do feel a bit better. Um yeah, and I had some time to to read a couple of books that I would wanted to get to. One was the Joshua Cohen book, uh The Netanyahu. So I can chat a little bit about that. My first experience reading. Joshua Cohen. And, you know, not entirely what what I expected to find, but that's always good in and of itself.
0: I'd love to hear then, your thoughts. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and then the second book that um, I'm just about finishing, which uh, I was talking to Roman offline about was my first experience also with Thomas Mann, if you can believe it. Here I am halfway through my life or well, more than halfway through my life. And so I read The Magic Mountain um, and perhaps not, not in the way that people might think because it, oh, you've read it because of the, um, you know, parallels with, you know, disease and quarantine with our own time. I, I actually didn't really think of that. It's just been on my shelf for, for a long time. Um, and so I'm kind of getting excited about what I find, what I found. It wasn't exactly what I had expected to find again, always a good experience. Yeah, so a good thing. yeah. And, and, uh, I think Roman and I are going to continue on with this Thomas Mann, uh, journey. And it, 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 it's made me think a lot about Robert Musel, um, uh, because they were almost exact contemporaries, uh, you know, uh, both in the Germanic world, uh, both, you know, obviously intellectually immersed in modernism, but seem to have different, different reactions to it in their art. So, so there's a lot there. Um, you know, and I know Roman that you, you had, um, you had done some reading, some stuff that you had uh maybe not entirely finished, but did some investigations yeah. That,
0: yeah. yeah, I've been kind of you know roaming around, um yep. expanding my my roaming entropy, my Roman entropy, mm-hmm. Roman roaming entropy. Um it really helped, you know, as far as uh, uh just being in a different environment. That just always sparks my neurons. It's lovely to be um I'm, I'm in the on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. Uh, actually, I'm at the I'm at the lower upper West Side, and <laughs> right at it's the beginning, tough of right, life, Roman. Yeah, 69th in Columbus, wonderful area. I'm within a five minute walk to Lincoln Center, two minute walk to Central Park. Uh, I am just so excited, so nice to be back. I mean, forget nice. Yeah. Nice is a weak, wobbly word. It's great to be back here uh after a year of being away from the city and also just living right in Manhattan. Yeah, you know, before I was living in Astoria, now I'm right in Manhattan and you can feel a little bit of the COVID effect. You know, there's there's definitely some empty storefronts. Um not as bad as downtown from what I gather, but it's uh, you can still see the effects. Yeah. But people out and about, you know, um not all are wearing masks indoors, unfortunately. But uh that seems to be uh at least my my uh, my take on it, and uh, it's just so nice to be back. It's so great to be back in the city. Yeah. I, I can walk to Shakespeare and Company. It's it's just around the block. Um, the Strand, uh, Upper West Side. Here they have a store is uh, open, and it's just uh, I'm in heaven. Nice, you know. But uh, so I've been trying to sort of read uh, here and there, but with the move and just being back in Manhattan, uh, I haven't really accomplished much as far as reading goes. But I do want to talk about. Uh, some of the science fiction I've been reading, which is kind yeah. of relevant to the climate emergency that we're experiencing. Um, and also some really interesting new satirical writer that I found, a satire master, a modern one. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you a, lo- a little bit about that as well. So, uh, but I we really, <laughs> I can't believe we agreed to do, uh, to read um Thomas Mann's Joseph and his brothers. I mean, I know we've yeah, got to so do maybe, the first maybe talk book.
1: about that a little bit. Yeah, so, so Yeah, so Rob and I give we, the announcement yeah, we, here.
0: We've talked about uh we've been sort of circling around Thomas Mann and trying to sort of get into really sort of deep into his stuff, especially after Musil and trying to um see how the two compare and contrast um so you have uh, are finishing The Magic Mountain. I read The Magic Mountain decades ago. Um, I read Dr. Faustus, of course, Death in Venice. Um, so we, I think we're going to go a little bit of a different route. We're going to attempt to read uh, the first of the four books of the Joseph and his brothers uh, series. Yeah. Now, it's something that Mann considered to be his best work. He really expected it to last more than any of his other work. It's kind of a middle period, right? Middle, late Absolutely. period. Uh, he wrote Dr. Faustus afterward. Um, but it took him 16 years to write this tetralogy. And um, I'll read the first book. I was hoping to read it in Russian. I have the Russian translation, but I don't think it's with me. It's in storage. So I think I'll just go with the English translation. Um, and its I've been meaning to read this for decades now because about – Twenty years ago, so um, a friend of the family, who's a very literate guy, uh, he's a writer. and He's actually a chemist by profession, but anyway, he gave me he gave me Russian translation of Joseph and his brothers. He looked me in the eye and said, "Roman, read this. Mm. You will love this." And he oh, said, yeah? "Forget about the English oh, translation. Cool. This is much better." But yeah, you know, he's a Russian guy, so of course he would say that. <laughs> but I think he's probably that's right. right. Um, yeah, I, uh, maybe that's. Beyond the scope of what we're trying to do here, I think what we're trying – what I try to do is just to get a handle on this uh, this masterpiece, uh, Joseph and His Brothers. And uh, I'm not particularly 100% excited about it, Rob, to tell you the truth, because Thomas Mann's prose never really attracted me, maybe because I, I can't read German, so I have to read translations, but he's – uh, yeah, Joseph and his brothers uh, is also biblical, so I'm not a huge fan of the Bible. <laughs> not, not in any kind of, I don't know, weird sense, but <laughs> – how, how, how can you say that? that? That's like saying you're not
1: – you're not a big well, fan of oxygen. I mean, come on.
0: Oxygen I mean, is all nice and seriously. everything, but you know, there's other elements in the universe. Um I don't know. You know, it's one of those. I mean, I really enjoyed the Magic Mountain because I think I was in my twenties, and I think it's yeah. a, it's, yeah. it's great for somebody in his twenties or her twenties. Um, uh, and I, I love Death in Venice. I thought that was a, I thought that was a, a powerful work um, that really opened up a lot of mm. thought patterns in my head. You know, um, and I love the writing of that because it's so contained and it's such right. a um, perfect little work. But his longest stuff, he just tends to meander and gets – and again, something – maybe something about man himself that doesn't attract me particularly. Because as much as I loved Magic Mountain, it wasn't a book that I was like clamoring to reread or anything like that. So like if you said Nuzil or Man, I would go right for Nuzil right away. I, right away. There's not not even a question in my mind. But – Having been recommended this book very highly by yeah. somebody high, who I respect highly, uh, I would like to give Joseph and his brothers a try. So let's read the first book and see. Yep, which is and see, yeah, The Tales let's of do that. um yep. So let's do that. And I think we'll go from there. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. It's, it's an historical novel, obviously, yeah. 14th century BC. I mean, there's some weird Egyptian stuff. It's a late bronze age mindset. So I don't know. I don't know what to expect. I'm kind of excited. I'm a little bit worried, Rob. I'm a little bit worried that the prose is going to make my eyes go close, you know, sleepy, get sleepy. So I'm hoping that's not going to happen. Right.
1: Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I do know that, um, there are, you know, new generations of translations. Um, I know Vintage International. It's headed up by um, the translations are. Um, yeah. James E. Woods. So, so I know that um, you know. There's there's been a a wave of updated translations. I you know I think for the reasons that you just stated, a certain uncertainty, feeling a little out of your comfort zone. Um, I, and, and you know I think it's probably a great experience to go and do that. I think, um, you know, like anything in life, we often fall back on our favorite restaurant, our favorite dish, you know, the, the uh, activity, the mm-hmm. coffee shop we feel the most comfortable at. And so I think, I think this is probably Stretch a good our, yeah. thing
0: just to yeah. uh horizon a little bit. Yeah. And, and
1: yeah. And, and, and let's, you know, and, and to be transparent, you and I like to be somewhat unconventional in, in our choices and this would be it. <laughs>
0: You know, the interesting thing about, you mentioned the translator, James E. Woods. Um, yep. I, I haven't been able to make these meetings. On Saturdays, there's an there online you know, Zoom uh, reading group of uh, Arnold Schmidt's Bottom's Dream, oh, which was translated yeah. by, by James E. Woods. Yep. And so it's a wonderful group, uh, very scholarly. I, I probably feel completely out of my depth uh, joining in, in the conversations. But I, I do want to sort of try to make it on one of these Saturday mornings. Yeah. Um, uh, but they're going to have James E. Woods, uh, join, uh, I think in the next week or two, uh, really? he'll be okay. joining that zoom conversation. So I'm going to try and maybe, uh, we're obviously going to be talking about, uh, Arnold Schmidt, but, uh, you know, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll ask him something about this if I have the chance. Um, Fantastic. you know, cause he's a wonderful translator. I mean, just, uh, just bottom stream translating it is just some sort of, uh, <laughs> superhuman undertaking. Um, wonderful so we'll see we'll see i'm, yeah, I'm excited sure. i'm excited because it's something new i mean my, my first introduction to man was at the age of 16 when i read dr faustus way too early uh yep. didn't understand most of it uh but it was a memorable reading experience and that's tells me something yeah i think we stressed that on is, our his, podcast right the, that it's if it's a memorable reading experience that must have been something interesting there something good
1: yeah is the Dr. Fautis novel I, – I know it's it's um, you know a fictionalized look at a composer's life. Is this is this Wagner or is it – Oh, no, not, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Okay.
0: No, no, no. It's not Wagner. Uh, I don't remember if you based it on like a real uh, – I'll have to sort of go back and re, re, yeah. revisit that book. But it was not Wagner for sure. It was, it was you know, something it, a little bit later on time-wise and stuff, so –
1: and and I, I, I asked because I actually have, um you know, like probably a lot of the people who listen, I have just endless books sitting on my table that I bought and haven't read yet. But one of them is, um, I don't know if you came across this from it. It's called uh, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow yeah. of Music by Alex
0: Ross, who is the New York Times. That was so, a big, that was a big, 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 yeah. big, big publishing event at one point. Yes. Like just recently. Totally. So, yeah.
1: I, so I, I saw it at Powell's for like nine bucks, hardcover. I'm like, I'm getting that. So I was just flipping through it. And uh, right in the introduction, there's a quote from Thomas Mann. You you know how you start getting those synchronicity moments when you're, right? When you're starting to focus (laughs) on something, everything starts to be Thomas Mann. And so right in the introduction, Thomas Mann said that um, he considered Wagner to be the greatest talent in the history of art. And I I love that, that he chose the word talent. Yeah. And, and... um, you know this is alex statements. yeah this is alex ross's thesis in a way that um you know wagner hit 19th century europe like a sledgehammer and you know the the ripples continue to to echo throughout you know culture politics art and that um it 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 just poking around the book it makes me think about the he he describes an impact that seems to be on par with you know, the famous scene in London in 1967 or so when Eric Clapton, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger went to a club to see this guy named Jimi Hendrix from Seattle.
0: (laughs) Sounds like a beginning of a joke.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I, I, have you heard this? Like they, they were told there's some cat from, you know, uh, the America who plays the guitar in this weird way. And I I guess they were all just, you know, flabbergasted. Um, So he, you know, Alex Ross sort of sets the scene of like, you know, you're, you're an artist, uh, a person plugged in and you first hear Wagner, you're just, you know, you, you can't recover. You know what I mean? Like you have to scrap right, everything right. you've been doing uh, and start again. And of course that's an era where opera was, was still, you know, such a culturally viable, you know, art form because it encompassed, you know, in a pre-media world, right. You know, music, you know, right, libretto, right. It was the,
0: the complete art form,
1: right. The complete right. art form, totally. So, yeah. so, uh, yeah. so that's on my shelf. But, um, to kind of go back to Mon, I think, um, I'll just sort of, uh, give you a quick impression of my surprise as I read the Magic Mountain. So I don't know anything really about it other than its reputation. And I, I, I knew it was some like mountain retreat or something, but I didn't really understand that it was, uh, you know, the idea of a tuberculosis. Uh, sanitarium, right, which were really common in mm-hmm. Europe prior to the, um, you know, finding an antibiotic for TB. So, so I'm like, I just want to read this. I have to know what this is about. And, you know, I know that almost contemporaneous with Robert Musil, like one of them was born in 1875, the other was born in like 1880. So very similar, um, you know, one's Austrian, one's German. So I'm I'm starting to read this book and I'm really surprised at how fairly f- conventional the style is and how conventional the structure is right the, this is and this is written in 1924 right high modernism i guess you'd say ulysses is written in 1922 oh, yeah right right there um, yeah, right right uh t.s Eliot publishes in 1922 also the um help me out here roman <laughs> the the key poem um, the wasteland jesus it was wasteland. like the four
0: seasons, no, it's not the four seasons. What am I talking the about wasteland. <laughs> the wasteland yeah
1: <laughs> so so I'm expecting you know uh you know some some maybe some challenging uh you know f- formal stuff. There isn't any of it, okay so but it's so I start going through it but but it's an excellent I'm engaged I'm reading i'm I'm kind of okay, okay, so where are the ideas? So, so the ideas start coming, and and so the novel is set prior to World War I, and the introduction of the preface sort of alludes to, you know, this is the world that existed prior to the cataclysm that came, right? Of course, the First World War, and he sets the scene that even though, you know, a few years separate pre and post war, the cleavage is so profound that you might as well measure it almost in centuries. So he's exploring, you know, the the sort of um, intellectual climate or almost intellectual health, you know, of Europe, right, prior to the First World War. But but the part that makes me start to think about Musil is that he starts to introduce characters who, who represent through their ideas, you know, some of the intellectual strains prior to World War I, principally this idea of progressive optimism, right, that we would just continue to get you know right. perfect ourselves right and of course world war 1 the reason it was so devastating was it was such a fu uh in the sense that like to progress right it was like <laughs> right here's your progress so um yeah so 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 there is there are characters who are representing these points of view um and but the part that's so different than musil is Musil would just page after page introduce intellectual themes one after another, dozens of them, toss them off left and right. Um, you you wanted to just stop and say, "Can we explore this?" You just dropped off this idea that I don't think I've ever heard, and he just moves on because he has such a you know a, a vault of of intellectual treasures, and he just tosses them off, and so. Thomas Mann is much more narrow and much more um, uh, careful, right? He, He keeps the focus on the intellectual ideas smaller. And the thing that I find most engaging about what I'm finding there is, and this probably applies to why we love books in general, is there's a peculiar point of view that I'm able to get access to a way of looking at the world, of observing physical objects. His his um, observation of the way people interact is is really just absolutely uh, spectacular. And it isn't in the psychological way of Proust, but more the social mannerisms, right? Because this is a sanitarium, they're this community high in the mountains, and they have you know five meals a day together, and they they play you know bridge together. So he's really fascinated with you know social roles and the way people interact um, and he his descriptions of 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 nature are really, really impressive. I didn't quite expect that from him so so I feel really intrigued by wanting to spend time with this point of view basically and and so that's what's really you know keeping me really engaged i I just want to turn the next page and continue to. See the world in this way, and so um, that's wonderful. That's yeah, great. But I, I, but it is not a challenging book in any way. Other than that, it's fairly lengthy, and um, it's it you know plods along in a way that a novel not written in two thousand twenty one can can often right.
0: Make. But it has a de- definite beginning, middle, and end, unlike with Musil, where you have this open ended. The, the unending novel, the never ending novel, and which I think is part of his aesthetic, of course, uh, program, so to speak. Um, so it's they're and just two very different beasts, but like you pointed that out, they are writing pretty much at the same time, they're contemporaneous, it's, it, it's uh, so writing odd. in the same language, right?
1: And, and I, I haven't done a lot of investigation, but I understood that you know, Musil hated man and was jealous of his, um. His popularity, success, right? Yes, Because yeah. Mann yeah, yeah, yeah. published Buddenbrooks when he was 25, and it was a, you know, he was recognized immediately as, you know, a unique talent and all this sort of stuff. But you know, so did Musil.
0: Remember, Musil also had that early success. Yes. But then, but right. then went downhill. And Thomas, as far as popularity, anyway. But then Thomas Mann went the other way. He he had an early success, and just kept on going up and up and up and up. Yes. So very and, very different trajectories.
1: And, and another little tidbit that I picked out, which I think is useful to think about is, so I'm also reading in um, uh, Companion with, with The Magic Mountain is the best biography that I could get a hold of is by Donald Pratter, and it's called Thomas Mann, A Life. And it was written in 1995. And I, I don't see like in the last 25 years, any like, at least in the English language world, you know, like. You know the the definitive, you know, up to date biography, mm. blah blah blah. So, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not plugged into academia or current, so I don't know if he's out of fashion. I have or, a feeling that
0: I have a feeling there were like a zillion biographies of this guy already uh, in English as yeah. well, and maybe that's yeah. just uh, it's. I mean, he's been studied it's, up the wazoo. You know,
1: he, right? Unlike Musil, Musil journals.
0: Yeah, Musil's different because he's he's less known. Um, so he he you know there's not quite as much uh, demand for the Musil stuff, but Mann is just. Um, I mean, you also got to remember he 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 came to the United States. He lived in L. A. He had a, a you know famous siblings who were also writers. So it's a whole family yes. of writers. Um, Heinrich. Yes. So it's kind of a he knew he knew he hobnobbed with you know famous contemporaries like you know Schoenberg and. And other refugees from the German speaking world. Um, so yes. he was much more, you know, out and about. And of course he was here in, in United States. Um, mm-hmm. so just, I think just, just from that, he had such a, a it's like a booster rocket of, of PR, you know, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to Musil, who pretty much died in poverty and obscurity. Um, right. And he, of course he never made it over here. Um, so – but again, very different very different approaches, but also I'm just I'm, – I'm, I'm really – I'm scared to tell you the truth, Rob. I'm a little bit scared of Joseph and his brothers. That's good. And That's good. I'm going to really uh, concentrate. Uh, I'm going to meditate and just get into this book regardless of my distaste, initial distaste, because I have a bit of a distaste, and I got to tell you that, Rob. Because there's something about mine that ah. just like Muzil. I just don't like him. <laughs> and I'm not sure I, I mean uh, not sure why. So
1: you know, I I'm excited because I think, you know, often that can be, you know, you you can really surprise yourself and and fall in love with I I, wanna, I, be, I, I, ch- my, I
0: want I want to be I want to be changed. I want to be I want to be changed, not as far as not as far as just, you know, the superficial, oh I like this or it's fun to read. That's superficial. I just want to a bit of a handle on them because, like I said, I when I read Doctor Faustus, I was too young. Uh, I really liked that reading experience because it was unique. I was at I was at music camp. It was the middle of the summer. I just I was bored, and I just read this pretty fast. And of course, it's about a composer. It's about music. It's about creativity. So I really resonated with that theme. Um, mm. and that's why I'm a little bit worried if because I like I said I. Prose didn't attract me. It was the themes and the ideas. Um, so I'm a little bit worried about Joseph and his brothers because it's, it's dealing with mythology. It's dealing with yep. biblical stories, all the kind of stuff that doesn't particularly excite me per se. So, right. But obviously we're dealing with a master here. So let the master – you know, follow the master and see what he does. And uh, I'm curious. Yeah, I'm really and, kind of excited and- but also scared a little bit.
1: And 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 you got to admire a guy who's you know the tales of Jacob the book we'll read the the it begins with prelude descent into hell I mean you know like yeah. <laughs> this is a this is a guy who's not trying to win you over which which you got to like no, no I think
0: the whole book the whole the whole uh, the all the four books I believe are I think that's kind of their main theme is this descent into <laughs> hell yes yeah, so. So great, right? Just perfect for COVID time. So let's read about the descent <laughs> into hell. Wait a second, we're there already. <laughs> let's explore our surroundings. <laughs> so
1: I, um, I like, a d- dude. Sometimes I feel like we're we're on a mission to to make our podcast as unpopular
0: as possible. <laughs> well, let me let me bring it back to something a little bit more popular because I actually dipped into something that uh, I think was a kind of a bestseller type of deal recently. It's um, it's a, it's a uh, not to s- suddenly switch themes like that but uh, uh it's a science fiction novel by Kim Stanley Robinson a, a pretty solid American science fiction writer uh, who's probably at the forefront of you know of the old guard anyway of the American science fiction writers getting he's getting up there in age and um it's it's all about climate change and climate emergency it's the near future there's a crazy heat wave in india oh I'm sorry the book is called The Ministry for the Future the Ministry for the Future um, and you know, there's a crazy heat wave. Yeah, I think 10 years in the future, something like that in India that kills 20 million people. That's how the book starts. And then there's various approaches about, um, what is happening with the climate, uh, how it's being dealt with. Um, it's, it's both, um, a bit of a, uh, there's definitely some tension. There's, there's people going radical, Uh, and, like, starting to kill people who are, you know, maybe executives in oil companies and stuff like that. Watering their lawn. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's definitely kind of a a bit of a a low-heat pot boiler, so to speak. The reason why I don't – I have an issue with Kim Stanley Robinson right from the beginning when I read his uh, Orange County trilogy uh, way back in the 90s. Um, I really wanted to like it because I was uh, living in Orange County at the time. Yeah. In California, and uh, and then I of, of course he has got a, f- a famous uh, a trilogy or four books uh, about terraforming Mars. I mean, it's green Mars, Blue Mars, Red Mars, um, and I read those as well. And I it's one of those writers that because you know, once in a while I come back to science fiction and I just want to read something good in that genre, so I keep coming back to him because he's around. He keeps publishing books every every year or two. Uh, he's a big name, recognizable. Again, something about his prose and the way he moves—the prose moves the pros move slowly. I'm not exactly looking for a potboiler. I'm just not looking for a crazy, you know, Dan Brown type, or you know, one exciting thing after another. That's not what I like either. But there's something about Kim Stanley Robinson's prose style that I don't like. Uh, yeah. But I like the ideas that he's exploring. And so I'm reading, I'm almost done with this book and I'm, I I am kind of enjoying it. You know, I am kind of enjoying it. Uh, It's also scary because uh, again, what, what I'm reading about is kind of, it's a trend in science fiction lately that I, uh, you know, this, this near future thing where it's not really science fiction. And as you know, the, the regular sort of the literary fiction people have, kind of co-opted science fiction because we live in a science fiction kind of world where even the now the present is you know sometimes up to 90% uh feels like it's fiction <laughs> even though it's reality uh it just feels very weird and fictional i forget there's a a wonderful word i wish i'd written it down there's a word that for for um, basically describes the the condition of of a fiction creating reality, which we've talked mm-hmm. about uh, about this on the podcast quite a bit. Uh, you know, you know me; I'm, I'm p- all pissed off at Philip K. Dick for creating our world. And I was always saying that kind of with tongue in, tongue in cheek type of deal. Obviously, he didn't; he was just writing and had this crazy imagination. But apparently, there's a word for that, and, and a lot of people are feeling that as well. That I'm not the only one that feels like some of these writers have. Efficiently or whatever they've they've predicted this world, but I'm thinking they've also created it by verbalizing it by giving it some sort of a linguistic context and then and then not the readers particularly, but some 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 sort of a weird disembodied zeitgeist picked it up you know on the wavelengths and said, "Oh, this is what you've imagined." Here you are. Here's the reality of it. And <laughs> so I mean it's I mean, dude, to to live in
1: to live in New York City and then to say be online all day for your work or your, your interest is almost to live entirely in the imagination of other human beings i mean how how can it not yeah.
0: and and yeah. and at the at the at the the mercy at the complete mercy of technology i mean you even even our talk this right now Rob is mediated by technology um but this mediation has become has become built in It's like almost we're all wearing glasses now through which we're looking we're not looking at at the at whatever's in front of our nose without this kind of intermediary of some sort of uh Totally. layers and layers of technology, you know? And so it's really, it's really, I think it's, it's having an enormous impact, but because we're all in it, we're not particularly seeing it. We're feeling it. Um, I mean, partly, obviously it's hard to disengage the fact that there's a, a global pandemic going on from, from our daily lives, but even, even putting that aside, even before this all started the covid and everything we were mediated up to wazu so this mediation has now become totally built in it's, it seems like it's a the sixth sense is zoom or something i don't know <laughs> you know <laughs> um, so i'm a little bit i'm a little bit worried about uh, the state of science fiction i don't want them to i don't want science fiction writers to be trying to deal with the future to be trying to say Here's the potential future and here's how I'm looking at it. Um, I really, and this is something that I think I share with people like Corey Doctorow, who is a wonderful, relatively young science fiction writer, um, who also writes kind of these near future techno thrillers. Um, he puts a lot of thought into it and a lot of his work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which kind of defends um Oh, the, the 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 consumers sort of side of the electronic divide. Um, hmm. so he's very interesting and very relevant, but I, I he also pushes for brighter futures to, for for writers to imagine brighter futures and to imagine something different. And I I, I hate that crap. Looking for that kind of fiction. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, you mean like imagine something different in some like like
0: like touchy no, feely political I, I want- way. No, 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 no. That's no, not no. what I mean. Okay. You no, know, like, like the anti-Dick, the anti-PKD, the anti-Philip K. Dick. Oh, I get meaning, okay. what I mean by that is because he, Philip K. Dick was writing, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And as, as our, our modern shitstorm was gathering, pretty much. And he, <laughs> he you know, he, he got on the wavelength and he wrote about it. And it was horrific. I mean, horrific stuff. He, of course, had some some sort of message of hope because he was, I guess, a a agnostic, you know, g n o, agnostic. He was he had this gnosticism, a kind of a, a filter, where he he kind of fig- he kind of guessed correctly that what we're being presented is kind of evil or or bad. What we're being just the, the sort of the on the face of things, if you just don't dig deeper, um, that's kind of a sham, you know, it's the, so the, the evil one kind of, you know, playing, playing mind tricks with you. So you have to sort of look beyond that or, or, um, in a different way. And so he did have some, I mean, his, uh, his writings towards the end, you know, some of his, uh, later novels, even as, as crazy as they are, there's, there's a message of, some sort of a hope over there, but anyway, but yeah. the current sort of mood in science fiction is very dystopia oriented, and I can't blame them because science fiction writers are just like you and me they're people who are living in in today's world, and today's world is giving us horrible messages about the near future um so what I am looking for is visionaries uh who are saying, okay. Our world is messed up. Things are really, really not, not well. Um, but here's a different way of imagining it and not necessarily in a syrupy, sweet, positive way, but I, yeah. I you know, vive la difference. I want to see something different. So, and what I'm not well, seeing well, different from these transfiction writers is, is just right. writing the near future, which is, we can all guess it, you know? So you're,
1: you're, you're, you're getting me worked up in a really excited way. So dude, I, I I've thought a lot about this but not in not in the particular area of science fiction but I I think the answer is or one of the my propositions is is that I think we are in a a a area or a time of decadence and I don't mean that in some kind of like moral christian sense but in a sense of um a a declining re- reductionist period where I just don't think there we have the intellectual and the cultural capacity to to propose and and to pursue innovation on a grand scale. There was a, there's actually a book that came out um, somewhat recently, and it it tried to document this idea that if you look at you know the turn of the previous the last century, the 18th and 19th century, there was just so many core innovative. You know breakthroughs that continue to be basically the, you know, the basis of what we're using today, right? Whether it's, um, you know, the combustion engine, or you know, the ability to fly, or you know, the 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 basic uh, programming for computers, all these kinds of things. You know, we we continue to have new, you know, commercial products or new consumer products that that seem fancy and new, but they're they're not breaking through and in, in, in changing the world. They're not visionary in the way that you were talking about. And, and one interesting piece about this that sheds light on it is investors. So right now there is, and it's been this way since 2008, when the Fed started essentially printing a lot of money, right? And, and, and lending money at almost zero interest, both to banks and into consumers, right? Mortgage rates are really low. Is that there's tons of cash flowing in the United States among, you know, obviously more privileged folks, you know, um, investors, businesses, et cetera, there's just nowhere to put it. There, there, there aren't many innovative ideas. There aren't enough companies mm. creating new stuff. Now that's, you know, I but I feel the same way in the world of art. I find things I like. I find movies. I find, you know, novels. I find stuff. But, but I still feel like there's a diminished capacity within the arts right now. And, and when I read you know, The Magic Mountain and, and I think about, could someone write a book like this today? And I feel like they can't. And I feel the same way with you know, Musel and Joyce and Faulkner and some of these people. And I, I don't think it's me being an old fogey. Um, I think what it is, is I don't think, I think writers like that have to actually come out of a rich culture, a rich intellectual culture, and I don't think we have, I think David Foster Wallace was really struggling with this, right? He, He talked a lot about growing up watching TV, right? He wasn't reading Virgil, right? And and so how do you integrate this pop culture childhood with the desire to have, you know, to be a literary artist and to have a rich intellectual life? And so, so sometimes I despair well, I mean, but- and just not sure if we can do it. Like, I don't know. I mean, that's why I almost wonder if the pandemic or perhaps the worst cataclysm to come with climate change we will make it, some of us, or some of our descendants. But but I, I think we're and, and, and look at our politics, dude. I know I'm on a soapbox here, but look at our politics where essentially the social unrest and, and a lot of the um political extremism, I think is a way for people to say the old solutions aren't working. And and whether they go to extremes on the right or to propose, you know, progressive solutions. It's essentially the feeling that um, things aren't working. I, I can see it in my own company. There's a real strain towards, you know, let's do it differently. Let's reimagine uh, our
0: company or whatever. So there's a yearning, but you know and I don't know if it's happen- <laughs> Sorry, I, go ahead. I, I, no, I, I just, I'm sorry, interrupted you, but I, I, I'm, I'm just using the science fiction model that we were just talking about. Uh, let's go back to the golden age of science fiction, right? The 40s yeah. and 50s. Uh, this was a time of enormous optimism after World War II. Um, uh, where, where uh, geeky kids, teenagers, pimply teenagers were reading all these, you know, pulpy fiction, science fiction-y stuff, and dreaming about building rockets and going to the moon. And, and, in fact, without this pulpy science fiction, I don't think we have ever would have gone to the moon. And speaking of the moon, the way we did it was with the public money. And you were just yeah. mention, mentioning companies and innovating. I think companies will innovate if it's in their best interest, immediate interest or short-term interest, which is not, is not the, really the interest of the public. It, rarely do companies act in the interest of the public, if ever. Um, and so it's to, to make a human societal change. I think you have to move beyond the private and into the public sphere again. And things have shifted so much away from the public sphere that now we have these uh, billionaire assholes going into the moon or we're going to space um, <laughs> in their own private little, uh, you know, tuk Um So, and speaking of science fiction, I mean, I, I think it was in Atlantic or something, um, how, how you know, Bezos and Musk are inspired by science fiction to do these crazy, you know, space yeah. voyages and everything like that. But this kind of science fiction they're inspired by is crap. And that's 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 what I'm trying to sort of say about about we need gotcha. better quality visions because they, they are inspired by Dune, for instance. I think that's Musk's thing. Um, which you know, a lot of people love Dune, and bless you if you do. I don't. I think it's it's grade B science fiction, it's not that great. Um, uh, wonderful visuals in the movie. Uh, and it would be nice to see Alejandro Hodorowski's Dune. That would have been awesome, very trippy. But but you know, the actual source material, the book is so so. It's not it's not a particularly visionary, it's 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 more a retelling of a sort of a you know colonial kind of thing. Um, So I just wish the billionaires, the ones that actually can do what the public used to be able to do before the public sector got gutted. um, I I just so wish that we had some sort of an enlightened billionaire, which of course is probably a contradiction in terms. uh, um, Somebody who would be inspired by the, the type of science fiction that would not make them look yeah. like they're villains in a movie. I mean, I'm sorry, but these billionaires are villains, they're societal villains. And yet we buy their shit, support them one way or another. I just bought something on Amazon just the other day. So I'm guilty mm-hmm. as hell as well. Um, so we're trapped in this yeah. kind of weird, like, we hate you guys, but here's our money. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, go ahead do some crazy shit inspired some, with some grade B fiction. And here we are, a fiction podcast, a liter- literary podcast, and I, I just have to rail against it. I have to rail. I have to yeah. tell them that they're inspired by shit. You know, that's what they're <laughs> inspired by, and that we need to stop this this, this private insanity and and make it public insanity. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I insanity. I
1: but I, I I love the point that you're you're making here. Is is about you're looking for visionaries and um you yeah. know so so my frame of reference often is just because I spent so much, so much time studying it is the catholic church and the catholic church has been around for 2000 years as an institution and one of the things you you see throughout its 2000 years whether you like the institution or not it it continues to survive and it continues to change perhaps not in ways that people who oppose it would like to see but if you just take it for what it is, there are periods of renewal and change, and it always happens by a break off monastic order, typically, or a break off priestly mm. order that that you know doesn't trash the whole thing and
0: renews things. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. As a and and so you'll see, for example, the like the Franciscans. Um, Basically, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa! The church is becoming too abstract, institutional, separate from the people, separate from nature. So you've got, um, you know, Francis of Assisi, going back to, you know, being a wandering beggar kind of thing, right? And so, so, so this sort of renews and reminds, like, hey, Christ was some guy who was, you know, doing X, Y, Z. So you see this throughout the history. Then there are, you know, uh, somewhat reactionary movements, the Jesuits, for example. But my point is that I think renewal, whether it's in science fiction or whether it's in, you know, the technology sphere or literary fiction or in, you know, the arts, I think it's always going to be small groups of, you know, underdogs, people underneath who start to, you know, you know, Rise through the cracks, so to speak. You know, I I was just watching. You know, skateboarding is now an Olympic event, and it just—it's so amazing to me that that an event that that was just kids using the urban environment to 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 express themselves. You know, railings and curbs. So so now they they recreate you know uh, a fake urban setting. You know, so these kids can compete as athletes. And I just thought, what fabulous! human creativity that was and, and how it, it, it just, it bursts through the crack. So I, maybe that's my optimism or, or I don't know.
0: Well, that's great, man. But, but see, see with the, with the church example, that, that, that's still, even to this day, that's a, that's a certain framework, a certain context that's there. And you can it's it's a it's a large enough. I mean, no pun intended. It's a Catholic context. It's ah, it's yep. it's it's very very large, meaning that you can move around with it, sort of like a stupid analogy, but like a breech birth. You can move the kid around, so it's not a breech birth. You know, you, you have that space to move things around to really really put things on their head with that tune, that, that analogy of the breech. Uh, um, mm-hmm. But what is the modern context? The modern, it's ever since you know, speaking of Thomas Mann and Doctor and Faustus, you know he he based, I think he based part of Doctor Faustus on Nietzsche's life, and we're talking about Wagner, and there's the there's the connection yeah. with Wagner because Nietzsche, of yeah. course, was also, uh, you know, heavily to say the least, influenced by Wagner. Um, this this reaction against Wagner, and then this. This Nietzsche sort of God is dead statement and moving beyond the context of the Catholic Church and in religion in general, which we are yes. still in the middle of, maybe maybe even in the beginning of, because I mean the world is still gripped by the context of religion. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, but but so so outside of that context, uh that's that's what we have to start looking and what is that context we have to actually define it at first and that's why that's why i think um in a sense you know to use a very vague term called capitalism it's just so vague but this this system of capitalism uh has kind of pushed out god pushed out religion and said you know we are this is it this is the market is the king um it's, obviously, it's not because it's creating a horrible environmental issue that is not sustainable. So what is this next large enough context where we can turn around and yeah. look around and maybe change direction? So uh, having, you know, lacking that fa- that that context of, of religion, which can be benign, can be very uh, forced to the good, as you know, I mean, even with the Catholic Church, there's a lot of socially good things that resulted for you know from the church uh, being there um but not having that anymore um i think my candidate for this all-encompassing context is the public domain it's it's us it's everybody it's the globe um and that's why i'm so against um, the whole privatization thing the whole let's let's let let me make as much money as i can so that uh you know i can I can be powerful in my context um because that just obviously is not working, though of course people will disagree with that that's that's i don 't care if they do, but you know it's just uh, I think it's that it's that we 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 went to the moon because people got together and got excited about it, not because of some you know rich asshole who just happens to have the money and there 's a race. Because some other rich asshole is trying to get there first, um, so some sort of a rebirth of the public common. Um, you know, I think I think people will call me a socialist or whatever. That's again, it's just not neither here nor there because I am I'm very vague about these ideas. I don't really know what they mean or or or, or what I'm talking about really. But <laughs> but I I know that I'm I'm sort of sniffing in the right direction. Um, and I really am concerned about, about my kids and their kids. Yeah. Um, something that I picked up from this uh, science fiction novel, Rob, I think uh, is uh, you would love this. It's, uh, it's the, the discount index and it's something that apparently, I think it's a real thing. I, I think he doesn't use it as a fictional device. It's basically um way of measuring how much we discount the future generations. So a low number that, you know, from zero to one, a low, like let's say point, point 0.1 um, on the discount index means that we really are thinking of the future generations. We're like, okay, we, we can't do this because you know, in 50 years, it's going to really mess things up. So we just can't do that. Uh, meanwhile, right now, we're at about a point 0.9 discount index. Basically, we're saying we're giving the finger to the future. Uh, we're saying we don't really care. Uh, I think a lot of people think that the future generations will be smarter and wealthier than we are. History has proven that not to be the case. Look at the magic mountain and the whole build up to the wars right um, uh, so 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 having this discount index in mind uh and actually thinking about about how our actions today will affect the future generations and this is not something abstract. this is our kids and our kids' kids. You know, this is potentially our old age, uh, since people are living longer nowadays. Uh, but we're we're so we're screwing ourselves uh, as we get older. Um, so again, I'm just trying oh, to yeah. think my way out of this dilemma somehow. I'm not sure where I'm but, going with it. Though.
1: But, it, but <laughs> is it fair to say that, in addition to you know the points you make about investing in public institutions? But that your other point is really that you're looking for, or you're hoping that literary artists would would grapple deeply with this, and and and
0: you know, yeah. No, absolutely. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's somebody it's, like that's... Pynchon, let's say. Pynchon is out already, but somebody like Pynchon with with uh, this pizzazz for prose and 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 wonderful ideas. Um, You know, Pinch's latest, what "Bleeding Edge," for instance, the one that he deals with so-called modernity, uh, wasn't that great, in my opinion. So, I mean, I think Pinch is on the way. I mean, he's 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 an older guy. He's he's. I'm looking for the new generation of Pynchons, You know, somebody who would be able to uh, not only use prose in an aesthetically masterful way, but to have that worldview that I am seeking. I mean, that's why I think I, we we'll come back again and again, Rob, in this podcast about why we love certain authors. And yeah, of course, the prose is incredibly important. Um, but it's that that moral outrage that that sort of like like that the Bernhard has. That Thomas Bernhard is just is ranting and railing against this crazy, crazy, um, uh, you know, people who are just not truthful, uh, and not it, artistically truthful. And, and gaddis, you know, uh, just just railing against the injustices of the world, but in a in a way that's not browbeating you, it's not moralizing, but right, just in because a, in we, a very we, aesthetically pleasing way.
1: Right. Because we have so much browbeating and 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 anger in our public sphere, right, with our political rhetoric, right? Right. So we, we get that all the time. So I I don't want you know a you know a literary screed. You know, I like you said it, it helped help me. You know, help me digest and work through what it means to be alive now, and and that's a theme that you and I often get down to brass tacks. It's like this is about life and living. You and I were talking earlier, you know, offline, and you know, figuring out yourself. I mean, ultimately, this is what the game is all about. You know, you're you're given this life and. And uh, there are struggles, and you know how do you incorporate life's experiences, and and, and just try to be a whole person, integrated person, and and so I, I don't think the culture is whole in any way, and 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 so I think a lot of the arts are. There is just no, you know, to your point of of you know there used to be this religious framework. There there isn't much framework, right? So there's fragmentation, you know. Maybe if um you know, you were to, uh, Harold Bloom had his, you know, various ages where he grouped literature in, you know, this is the age of fragmentation perhaps, or atomization, you know? Um, So I don't know where I'm going with that exactly, but I, but I think this idea of, we, we, we look for books. I mean, you and I look for books that are um, great minds, visionary people Ah, uh, incorporating the challenge of being alive—you know—at this mo- at this point in time. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, we we may be yearning for a, an art form that, you know, the the literary novel that is, you know, has has already become like nineteenth-century opera, you know, a real. Um, artifact interesting artifact with with caretakers and archivists and you know devoted hobbyists but at the end of the day uh an art form that just isn't isn't um having an effect on the culture and isn't a- having an effect on the imaginations of too many people i i don't know
0: yeah i know it's uh, it's funny cuz i'm i'm right next to the the met over here met opera yeah and uh they're, they're actually really struggling right now, especially with the potential of Are they? I mean, they're planning on reopening in September. But, uh, you know, things are a little dodgy, um, the Delta variant and everything. Uh, my wife is in Vegas this weekend for a conference. She almost canceled because things in Vegas are just horrendous, horrendous. She said that um, nobody's wearing masks. Um and it was actually scary. There's a five minute walk from the conference center to her hotel, and she said she was she was fearful of being attacked. And there are just uh, gangs are roaming the streets of Vegas, and what these gang like <laughs> gang like activities going on there. And um, so, I, but as far as the, I mean, I don't know if the I mean, yeah, I don't know if the opera will be be around much longer if if they have to cancel this yeah. whole season. That's just going to be a, a real yeah. issue.
1: I mean, you know, again, to make the comparison with, you know, the literary novel, I mean, if you think about, so Philip Glass, right, he, he, um, in addition to his uh, other musical forms, he writes operas. And, you know, uh, what was it, Nixon on the Beach in the early 70s was. Nixon in those, China. Excuse me. Yeah, Nixon in China. For for those who are, oh, I'm thinking also of Einstein on the Beach. So a couple of these. Einstein on the Beach, right. right Nixon was, went
0: to China, Einstein went to the beach. See, who's the smart I, one? I, I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: and and so you know for those who are connoisseurs of opera, those who work in the industry um those that small community of people, these were innovative uh incredible additions to to the um to the canon um they proved that opera was still vital, you know this was a reimagining of opera, et cetera et cetera et cetera, but nobody in the actual culture would knows these operas could give two shits. And, and so, I mean, is that, you know, I mean, so Rob, Rob, Joshua Cohen's that, that Yahoo's, I mean, (laughs) me and me and 73 people.
0: Right. Right. You know, you know, Belgium wouldn't exist without opera. Did you know that? I think, I think it's Belgium. I mean, I remember there's some story about, um, I forget the details, but it's, there was some opera, I believe it was in Paris or somewhere where it basically dealt with some sort of, a, a, you know, a, a, the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie type of deal, type of theme. Mm. And uh, it caused a riot, at this opera, it caused a riot to the point where um, th- they literally split off from, I, I got to forget the details, but the Belgium was formed because of an opera riot is what it comes down to. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, that kind of, and then you have, of course, um, the Rite of Spring, not an opera, but you know, uh, again, very. It, it's sort of the the cannon shot of the the of modernity. You know, Rite of Spring. So these kinds of cultural aesthetic works, uh, right? It, it, they seem to have uh, moved to the sidelines, and now we have. Um, the culture is is lurching from from one billionaire's uh, wet dream to another billionaire's wet dream <laughs> that's why i'm that's why i'm thinking we're we are in such a deep hole with with this system that uh, i'm not sure if the public good will be able to recover at least not anytime soon for me to see the benefits of it for you and i to see them yeah. um yeah. but it needs to happen because rob something that really Really opened my eyes, uh, and I'm not. I'm not a pessimist as far as that goes. I kind of, I, I tend to think that humans are ingenious enough to figure, you know, figure stuff out eventually. But here's here's a little statistic that uh, not a statistic, but just a number. When I was born in 1970, there were about two billion people on the planet. Fast forward 50 years, I'm 50. The world is 50 years older, but there's nine. Billion people, almost nine billion people on the planet. So, I mean, where are we going with this? (laughs) What's the the end game here? Is the end game going to be nine more billion people in fifty years? That's just going to be insane. I mean, it's you know, it's not going to work.
1: I mean, so I want you to write that visionary science fiction novel, and I want the title to be "Where Are We Going (laughs) with This?" Question mark. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. There it is man. There's there's your mission uh, Oh yeah. my gosh. I I don't oh, know dude. Man. But but it's interesting when you say that, you know, 50 years later and I flash to playing wiffle ball with you as a kid and it's it just shocking <laughs> that that the, the time has has passed. Um
0: back then we also we always we all also thought that the world was crazy and and you know, there was there were the, our own issues back when we were teens, right? The world at least, not we. Um well yeah. I mean there was it's, the threat of- always always some sort of threat, right? But but it's it, but it's it's become it's become less abstract and more uh you, you know you're sweating because of climate change. Just you're, you're literally having a hard time breathing uh there's fires there's floods there's not enough water there's too much water and so these things are in your face. They're they're in our faces every day. It's no longer well. They might push the button. They might not push the button. We might all be va- vaporized. We might not. Kind of an abstract feeling, though. I'm sure it didn't feel very abstract to people who were like, "Oh shit, we gotta we gotta do our nuclear bomb drill and hide on the table." Uh, you know, as, as as I think you might have done. I, I know my wife did it when she was a kid california mm-hmm. i mean i i was on the other side of that uh of that button i was in russia <laughs> i don't remember feeling that but um you know it's 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 become more uh more inescapable should we say it's just there's no yeah. way we can really unless you're uh, blindfolded by political agendas and whatnot, there's no way of escaping this feeling of, um, you know, the world is not only changing rapidly in this danger everywhere around us, but it's, it's changing rapidly in this danger everywhere around me. Uh, You know, it's uh, like people are now beginning to realize that it's, you know, I'm affected. I'm directly affected. Um, You know, so it's, 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 palpably a different, I, and I'm also, you know, I'm also a parent now, I'm, I'm older, obviously it's a different kind of approach to life. I, I'm palpably feeling the danger of our runaway mentality of, of not caring about the future. Um, I, I'm feeling it like somebody's basically poking me with a, with a stick the whole time. I'm actually literally feeling it, you know. Um, so it's way less abstract and that's why I'm I'm reaching out to my, I see, my, my balm, my, you know, my be it all, you know, the the thing that I rely on, have relied on for most of my life uh, literature to sort of see my way uh, around this world that I live in. So I'm reaching out and I'm, I'm coming up with kind of empty air. I don't, I I don't, I can't seem to grab anything. Uh, Like I said, I'm enjoying this near future novel by Kim Stanley Robinson he's got some very wonderful ideas in there i am learning uh, about the possible ways of dealing with the climate emergency and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. so i'm appreciating that but i just yeah. i, I no, just don't it, i don't get that excitement i don't have that excitement of like let's yes let's build that rocket to the moon let's do it let's right. get together well, and then do it right you know? yeah
1: no it, again the, the 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 horizons are quite limited and even you know like uh, in an in in important way, I mean, what's happening in our society, in our corporations, our schools, et cetera, is people saying, hey, stop blocking people's path to having a full life and stop, um, you know, destroying people's lives because of their background or their skin color. And all of this is very, very important, right? And it's happening. Um, we're seeing it uh, in the organizations and in the places we go. But the, 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 one of the things that has occurred to me is that um, diversity as a topic uh, dealt with by artists is not particularly interesting or, or something that is endlessly fascinating. It's a super important social issue, right? It should be dealt with by our, our uh, board of directors, our city councils, our schools, um, et cetera. The fascination with social inequity in a lot of the realist novels that continue to hit the streets these days and we're told are, you know, incredible novels. I think, again, it's another indication of like, where are the visionaries, right? I think this is where I think you and I ask artists to to both be visionaries, but detach also a bit. And, and, and I, I don't know if you feel that way, but the endless... Investigation of race as a topic, it is absolutely essential and critical for our society. But I don't find it interesting or intellectually deep, if that makes any sense. Right? There's there's a lot of ink, uh, you know, devoted to you know uh, the the minutia of of racial inequity in the country, and again. Within the society, it must happen, and I'm completely behind it. But art, art, transcend, and humanity, I think, does transcend social roles, ethnicity, religious background, right? I mean, isn't this the whole idea of thinking of humanity as one? I mean, isn't this what, you know, mm-hmm. at, at the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, they had Imagine playing, you know, by John Lennon, right? This this piano little ditty he banged out in 1970. I mean, it's, I think that that song rises above um, this fascination with tribe, with um, class, right? With all those sorts of things. So I hope people understand what I'm saying, because I even feel like weary of of even voicing such an opinion. Um, But I hope people understand that just because something is a critical social policy it doesn't mean that it makes for great art as a topic. Right. And so I think, yeah. you know, a lot of like, there was Jonathan Franzen, he had like his, um, I don't know, he had his novel, I think it was called freedom, which talk which was like a, uh, you know, a Julian Assange type character. And yeah, I, that's, yeah. I don't, you know, that's, that kind of like, that's I don't know the stuff it's of just, Dan
0: Brown kind of fiction. You know, it's, it's like, it's, it's just, yeah, know, and nice. I, and i
1: and i know there are lots there are lots of novels that are exposing stories of uh, you know minority groups in the country that that have not been exposed and i think they're interesting in a way but i think you and i are where you know where is the the the, the visionary art right that 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 takes us because the thing that folks don't realize is the obsessions of today of 2021 they m- most likely won't be the obsessions 12 years from now right so right just, that that's hard for people to to think about you know so i'm not interested so much in like you know what is trending you know that kind of thing but like we are human but, beings on this on this journey and it's i find it i find it challenging to be a human being to, to, to understand myself all the time and, and what, you know, what this life is about, but I, I, but it's damn interesting. So far thumbs up for life, but, but it's not easy. Maybe that's.
0: No, no, I, we got, we got We got to be life affirming for sure. Because look, however bleak things might look or however bleakly we might perceive things um, yeah. reality is just reality. It's not uh, there's no, you know, if you remove the sort of the human perspective from it it's just what's what's happening it's not bad not good yeah. you know there's nuclear reactions in the sun we we don't curse the sun well actually I've been cursing the sun lately because it's too damn hot <laughs> uh, but you know it's just uh, there's, uh, there's all kinds of natural processes to go on and whether we're affected by them negatively as, as as far as maybe being wiped out wiped out as a race or or really <laughs> affected negatively or our civilization might take a step or two or 17 back um but ultimately it's it's just what is and what is has no no uh no uh, ethical value no moral value to it it's not good or bad it's just what is yeah um However, now we are part of the picture. We can't really step outside of ourselves, and so I, I'm I'm looking to those recesses of the—is that a word? Uh, uh, of the human psyche that um, maybe use a, a Jungian term, the collective unconscious, where yeah. we can start pulling some of that visionary. Let's you know this. This here here's the treasure of of continuing flourishing of the civilization, or or perhaps maybe you know a, a very a very all encompassing kind of look of saying, well, well, maybe you know maybe things will be bad for a while and we'll be called, so to speak, you know, the great calling as they're calling it for the COVID, yeah. and then you know the Darwinian sort of thing of like, you know we'll we'll lose the idiots who are not vaccinated or refuse to get vaccinated, we'll will we'll they'll die, um, uh, and so it'll be a, a very kind of cataclysmic event because we're talking about millions of people. Um, and it will probably take years if not, you know, hundreds of years, but, but, you know, some sort of all encompassing vision that maybe will sort of give us something else to work towards. And that's why I really, I've been promoting, um, recently for some reason, I forget exactly on Twitter, but I. As as far as that bad science fiction that that Musk and Bezos really are inspired by, I was like, why aren't they inspired by uh, Olaf Stapleton? um, You know, Mm -hmm. somebody who had this incredible vision. The Star Maker is a book that presents a vision of humans in history, in deep history, and the deep future um, sort of transcending themselves, transcending their own way of even thinking about transcending, if that makes any sense. It's a Star Maker is an incredible book. It's probably the most visionary book that I've ever read. Uh, and I've read a lot of science fiction, a lot of crazy kind of stuff. Um, it just – it presents a vision of different uh, – Rob, you should uh, you should definitely read it because it's it's very um, non-science fiction-y for a science fiction book. You know what I mean? There's no aliens yeah. particularly. There's no – it's just a grand vision. It's like this guy yeah. – Goes on the hill in England, and he kind of dozes off, and he has these visions. Or I forget exactly what the mechanism is. Maybe he's actually not just a vision, but it's actually uh, something that happens to him. But anyway, it's it's um, it goes beyond even our, our common understanding of what God is. So so I'm looking for something contemporary, somebody who can do that now. And that, what I'm thinking, uh, Rob, is that you know how people are like, well, we're not ready for a COVID novel. And I agree. I, I think, I think it's too early. I think the people who should be writing the COVID novels are the ones who are four and five years old. Now yeah, ones exactly. who are, because whose nervous system is is being literally imprinted right. with this kind of uh, reality that we're living in. And so once they get into their late teens and twenties and begin a creative life, let's see what they come up with. I'm really curious. Hopefully I live that long, you know, that, Because it's something we had a fundamental shift just in the past year that we really can't get our minds or or we can't really wrap our minds around it because it's just just happened. And it's fundamental because I think it's 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 it's, um, first time that it became um, a worldwide event. And I guess maybe it's not the first time because they were like, you know volcanic corruptions that affected the globe and all kinds of things but it's the first time we're all kind of because of technology are clued into this and are affected by it uh, regardless of who you are where you are how much money you make Uh, we're all affected by it and so to to have something some sort of an aesthetic vision from a person a writer because that's our medium that we deal with you know we're not even talking about films and, and music and other forms of Aesthetic expression, uh, but I'm really curious to see what the people who are whose nervous systems are being shaped by this this latest global crisis, um, how they will sort of, maybe not specifically write about COVID. You know, when I was four years old, this is what happened. Nothing like that, obviously. But to see no. how their nervous system, what kind of art will they create? You know, I'm really. Really curious about that. I think anybody who's now an adult will be disqualified as far as, as far as that kind of vision, you know,
1: it's, it's like, you you can imagine a history book being written, you know, 300 years from now. And in our, our little blip, you know, is just a a subheader down on page 234 and the subheader says, Mm. you know, the rise of global consciousness, right. it says, you know, you know, during the dark ages of the COVID-19 global pandemic, the human race, um, as you said, was, you know, both technologically connected, but also connected by disease. And, you know, in the ensuing wars, riots, and depressions that followed the COVID-19, <laughs> you know, the the remaining uh, uh, nations, most of them in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, be- began a new, you know, globally conscious, uh, you know, sophisticated civilization. I mean, I, I don't know, but I i i i have oh that God, why I have... why
0: rob why are we why are we living in dystopian times why can't we live in utopian times there were those times right i mean i guess maybe there weren't really those times maybe i don't we know just yeah about. they were utopian communities <laughs> um or so... utopian moments i mean look at the transcendentalists in new england um you know there's there's those there's were... there's periods where you can sort of point to where where things were like people thinking things are looking up and we're positive about the future um and we're working towards something positive um and it just seems like because our current moment seems to turn everything sour maybe it's like i i don't think it's just me i just, i don't think it's just me because i i look mm. i look for that good stuff you know mm. and i see it here and there but 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 for the most part it seems like there's a there's some sort of a germ in everything that makes it sour. That sours yeah. it and turns it dystopian. Um
1: Well, it's, it's again like because that, we,
0: we're lacking the total context of religion, like you were saying, the Catholic religion, or the public good of the of the mid twentieth century. Lacking or, that know, context com- now, right? Or communism?
1: I mean, this is why communism was so appealing. It was an entire right. Uh, intellectual and social system and political system that you could just sort of put on, right? And so this this is what's so appealing about- But again, so the cynics the ad- will
0: say, look what happened to communism. You know, look what happened to that. So don't well, even dare well. to be utopian. Don't even dare because it's just going to turn into something bad right away. And so that's the totally. that's the mentality that I, I'm trying to get over or trying to see past. And oh. I can't. All I see is bad. I, what I'm trying to do I'm relying on, on people like the Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, who uh, yep. was a, one of the co-founders of Deep Ecology. I think we talked about this uh, like six months ago yep. something. Uh, as far as you – know, I, I think he's right. I think in the short term, we're talking the next 50 years to 100 years, uh, that's short term. <laughs> uh, it's uh, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I, st- I see capitalism sinking us further and further into um, some sort of um, – uh, some sort of psychological debtor's prison um, where we cannot see uh, 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 any kind of positive arc. Uh, but the long term, beyond the century, if we do survive the upheavals, uh, uh, he was positive. And I, I, I want to be positive too. And I want to read books that will show me uh, yeah. visions of that. And I think that's maybe what I, I mean by that.
1: And, and i think i think our our listeners uh small but mighty i i think they they would they probably raise their fist uh in solidarity i think that's what they're looking for too i think that's what all yeah you know really dedicated readers people who i hope so you know um but i i but guess time, um, you know
0: good good fiction also good, good fiction you have to remember relies on bad shit happening i mean that's that's the interesting yeah. stuff right <laughs> so so yeah. you know um yeah. Uh, so maybe there's something about. I mean, maybe there's something about the nature of storytelling, where we tend to, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, uh, when we tend to focus on the horrible, because it's just more interesting. You know, I mean, I don't want to watch. Uh, uh, you know, NASCAR. But I'll watch it if there's a twenty car car pileup collision. I'll yeah, fuck me, sign 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 me up. I'm going to watch that. (laughs) I hate NASCAR, but let me watch the cars go up in flames, people running around with no heads. Let me watch that. Yes, I want to watch that. You know, it is a George Carlin routine, actually. Um, (laughs) But but it's true. It's true. I mean we. Uh, look! Look at like Aldous Huxley. You know, he he wrote what Island, which is kind of the utopia. Uh, uh, you know, he, he of course first wrote a very famous dystopia, but but then came up with this book, and it's not very well known for a reason. It's not the best book out there, and it doesn't have that um, lurid factor. You know, of like oh, this look, you could be you know tattooed with your number and things are going to be horrible in the future um which attracts eyeballs because but again maybe because we are living that future already we are living in in situation which is fraught with a uh, with danger for our own physical selves like now not in the future now we're in danger uh so maybe maybe that danger will make us Think about you know if it bleeds it leads type of deal, and we'll start concentrating on what doesn't bleed, what what stops the bleeding. That should be leading the the front page news, um, you know. And I'm I'm really hoping that that will turn around. And if not, I will keep fighting for it, and I'll keep seeking out sources that do that. You know, mm-hmm. um, the far and few between. Um, uh, but I did want to talk to you about something. Uh, interesting connection, Rob, just getting back to books. uh, I attended a a virtual birthday party for Raymond Smullyan, who's been gone, unfortunately, for a few years now. But, you know, about 20 people also showed up on Zoom, former students. uh, And uh, it was run by Jacob Smullyan, who is, um, I believe, Ray's... A few, I'm not even sure how they're related, but, you know, so we talked a little bit. He was talking about republishing some of Raymond Smullyan's books. And for those who don't know, Raymond Smullyan was a mathematician, logician, uh, musician, incredibly fascinating character who wrote logic puzzles and was very, very uh, a sage-like personality. Uh, I visited him a bunch of times. We sort of became friends. And, you know, towards the end of his life, he was in his late 90s. Um, mid to late 90s and anyway so so jacob Smollian, it turns out is the publisher of a uh, sagging meniscus press which i was aware of kind of vaguely but i had no idea that there was a Smolian connection there but uh, so that was really wonderful to get that connection and he turned me on to a scottish writer mj nichols who he's published um and i started reading uh uh, uh, one of his books, and I'm just loving it. I mean, first of all, it's 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 great satire. Some of the best satire I've read since maybe Pynchon or something, you know. Um, uh, and here I can, I he's got this one book uh, called The House of Writers, and you would love this, Rob, because it's all about writers. Uh, it's kind of a, a relative near future dystopia, you know, but it's not really science fiction. It's just very good satire. I mean I guess it is science fiction but not really where where you know Scotland becomes um basically a huge call center answer all these you know calls from the billions of people in the world and they just have stupid questions and pretty much all of Scotland is just one giant call center and, and everybody works in the call center except for a few people who are still like consider themselves writers so they they go to this house of writers and it's just it's funny as hell Uh, I recommend this if you want to just be laughing until you're crying. Uh, let me just read you one chapter where, you know, again, the writers in this near future are completely marginalized. They are, uh, there are the dregs of society, um, which is interestingly the opposite of another book, um. In a similar vein, uh, Sam Rivieri's um, Dead Souls, again, near future, where writers are like stars. The writers are like the bomb, you know. Um, but, but MJ Nichols has the writers being kind of really marginalized. And here, here's a chapter called Books No Longer in Print. And let me just read you a few minutes of this. This is just titles of books. Just, it's not even like no narrative here, but just it's funny. Here are some of these books that are no longer in print. Don't You Forget About Me, The Unauthorized Simple Minds Biography. <laughs> um, a, uh, don't Look Back, A Brief History of Sodomy. The Everlasting Story of Nora Jones. Um, Muzak versus Silence, A Debate. Uh. 14 Perspectives on Dan Brown's Inferno, A Study Guide. Frenchman <laughs> Eat Custard and other randomly uh, utterly random questions about our coastal cousins Uh, let's see what other funny ones here Horatio's Nutcracker Uh, a concise (laughs) overview of the Scottish novel buttered hysteria six perspectives on an abomination Uh, bored in Bethlehem the pilgrim's guide to livening up that epiphany (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. so there's just this is a hey, Nick Nick Hornby's top 40 singles, Nick Hornby's top 40 albums, <laughs> the ultimate guide to traffic signs in Peru. Uh it's just you know, it's kind of like a Monty Python-ish uh uh here, yeah, Nick's Nick Hornby's top 40 Nick Hornby novels. <laughs> and I love the fact that he actually mentions real writers in this. Um he just relentlessly makes fun of some of these writers relentlessly. Um, uh, so I really recommend them if you just want to be just laughing uh, again, it's nice. not, uh, not the most uplifting <laughs> reading because you get kind of like after they're laughing, you're like, Oh shit. You know, it's just, it's kind of depressing, <laughs> but it's, it's very creative. Uh, and I'm, so I'm, I'm, just, I'm loving just discovering somebody new like that who I'm, you know, laughing uh, reading some, it's always a kind of a treat. Um, nice. but interestingly, how, how, how the, the two books that I was kind of attracted, like really three or four books that I was attracted to recently all have to do with writers and writers in the near future. And one of them is kind of a positive vision. One of them is a, well, actually both of them are kind of a negative vision because I don't know if you, have you heard about Sam Rivieri's, uh, dead souls, Rob, it's been kind of, no, just,
1: just from you a little bit prior to uh,
0: yeah, it's been well uh, reviewed so. um, well reviewed and i think it's worth the read because it's um it's about plagiarism in in the literary world and interestingly enough uh it's using uh it's a, it's using thomas Bernhardt's style so in a way it's a plagiarized style and where he writes about plagiarism but it's all i think legit and kosher it's it's I mean so many writers have been influenced by Thomas Bernhardt. I think there's there's countless writers now. It seems like it's almost impossible to avoid that. Though if if you want to read one book uh that sort of like has that Thomas Bernhardt fire, um it's I would recommend the first one that kind of did that, which was uh Jeff Dyer. Or you know no Jeff Dyer, right? He's the uh, uh yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, he's a relatively well-known guy. But he he's one of his earlier books is something about all the rage. Oh, I wish I remember the, the name, but it's it's basically all about how how Thomas Bernhardt influenced him. Um let me see if I can find it. Jeff Dyer. Uh, the rage, because I, I really want our listeners to uh, pick up out of sheer rage. That's what it's called, out of sheer rage by Jeff Dyer, uh, D Y E R. Uh, really, uh, it's 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 you know ostensibly it's it's about a, a talented young writer who's like you know about to wants to start this study of D H Lawrence, uh, and also maybe write a novel. So he's not sure what to do but uh it's a very kind of Bernhardian setup where you know the bernhardt uh, uh so called heroes or anti heroes or whatever you want to call them the protagonists antagon- i don't know what they call it, but you know he always has somebody who's writing a monograph uh, on on Mendelssohn or somebody who's writing something or attempting to write something and because they can't finish it or they can't get going resulting rant is what you know the, the actual book that you know the Bernhardt writes. Um, so it's, it's, it's very Bernhardian in that, Bernhardian in that way, this, this out of sheer rage. And I, I really enjoyed that book. Um, but it's not fiction, but well, was, there it was, it wasn't particularly fiction. I didn't read like fiction to me, but Sam Rivieri's Dead Souls was definitely fiction. Um, and it's an interesting attempt to use somebody else's style to tell a story about plagiarism. Uh, and about writing in general, about creativity, what it means in, in in a world that reproduces everything so quickly and so instantaneously and, and effortlessly, um, where you can actually use parts of other people's writing in your own writing, and what does that mean, and how much can you use without going overboard and it being no longer your work, and what does it mean to have your work in today's world? Um, hmm. So I... I would recommend those books. I think they, they really gave me some lots of interesting food for thought um, just recently. So nice. that's what I've been reading, you know, and So uh, nice. yeah, we'll, we'll keep on going. I mean,
1: yeah, man, we've, we've, uh, we've had a marathon session and um, you know, I, I, I think if you didn't join us for the beginning, Um, we are going to read the first volume of Joseph and his brothers by Thomas Mann. And that is, if I recall, Jacob, tales of Jacob is the name of the first novel. So we're going to dip our toes in and then
0: see what we find. So, so we'll take about a month or so and maybe reconvene.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it sounds great. That's perfect. Well, um, it was great talking man. And uh, again, Roman Sivkin, I'm Rob Fay, and thank Heston Hoffman for his sound engineering duties. And you can always follow us on Instagram or on Twitter at Fieldbookish. So thank you, and we'll talk to you next time.